0: I'm Billy I'm drew and this is pilot Club so drew what if what have you got for us this week well what's what's first on the well, what's I, first on the <laughs> ticket this week first cab
1: off the rank mm. is nice. David Simon's new miniseries mm. uh, we own this city. Sorry, now. Just,
0: I've just eaten like almonds before doing the podcast. I'm just trying to swallow the fragments so that <laughs> I don't cough the whole time. There are a
1: lot of fragments. It's, 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 it's very difficult to uh, fully digest, aren't they? <laughs>
0: There's a massive like after after mouth feel for almonds. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, yeah, if I'm coughing, it's not a COVID cough. It's an <laughs> almond cough. Sorry. Um, Go ahead. Well, I think I think
1: firstly this series um, and this whole uh, period that we're living through really does beg the question. I guess. Have we reached peak TV? Mm. I mean, there's an incredible wealth Whoa. of series. Wow! <laughs> incredible wealth of series coming uh, down the pipeline now. I think mm. we've chosen three new series um, premiering the last week, but I think we could have chosen uh, ten mm. this week. So um, for whatever reason, we I think we are entering you know this period where we we are have a wealth of choice mm. and um, not only a wealth of choice, but a wealth of choice from very well-respected showrunners, well-regarded books and from well-regarded streamers as well.
0: I wonder if it's just partly because the number of streamers just keeps on increasing. Like Mm. I feel now, you know, like at least um, one of our shows, two of our shows this week, one of them's from Paramount Plus Mm. and quite a few of the upcoming big shows are on Paramount Plus and add to that the Disney Plus content and it's just... I wonder if it's just partly more streamers. Yeah, it's, I think it's that's having, right. It's having that impact.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And obviously they're they're all competing mm. um, and these competitive pressures are driving them, I think, to create new content. So mm. there's a bit of a content war and a bidding war. Mm. And I guess the beneficiary of that is the viewer to a certain extent because we get series from you know, very well-regarded showrunners whose shows perhaps were not you know huge commercial successes when they were first released and mm. tend to be slow burn successes. And this is certainly the case... With David Simon and his mm. you know, very famous series, The
0: Wire. Mm. Um, you rem- it reminds me, it's funny. Have you ever seen? You've seen that, you seen know that tw- of course, you know that Twitter Modern Seinfeld. Um, yeah. For those who haven't seen it, it's a Twitter feed imagining, you know, Seinfeld episodes in the present. And part of the joke is that you know the original run of Seinfeld is so dependent on the particular place and time and technology you know endless mm. jokes about answering machines and there's a great and they sometimes do little bits of dialogue and there's a great one where the episode premise is uh, Elaine's boyfriend breaks up with her because she hasn't watched The Wire oh, and yeah. there's a little bit of dialogue <laughs> and Elaine, it's, uh, Elaine's like you know how good can it be and Jerry's like oh it's good <laughs> it's good Elaine don't you worry about that The Wire's good <laughs>
1: um, but I think you were just researching when The Wire was first released and mm.
0: unbelievably 2002 so this, this new yeah. series is coming 20 years Years after the start of the wire, exactly.
1: So, you know, signifying, I guess, a a pretty uh, you know major anniversary of the wire. Mm. But I, because the wire was such a slow burn success, I don't think I actually came to it until 2010, where it did feel equally topical as 2002.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, I came to it about oh eight oh nine, but in my mind it was contemporary with a lot of the stuff I was watching then. Like, in my mind, The Wire and Breaking Bad are roughly contemporary. Yes. But, of course, well, well, this, this epitomises it, right? Like, we're now at the 20th anniversary of The Wire, and yet, better course all, the continuation of Breaking Bad is only just finishing. So yeah. they're, they're a generation apart, and yet I know what you mean. Like, in my mind... And it's interesting, isn't it? Like, there's something about that, and about the way in which DVD culture worked at the time, in Australia at least, often discovering their shows belatedly, I remember your story about you watched season three of The Wire, one disc out of order. Yes, the DVD architecture <laughs> was so complex, yes, yes so absolutely confusing. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: that's right. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I, I, I watched it out of sequence, and mm. I was, I was somewhat confused, but I don't think any more, any more than you know yep. the standard. Uh, response to a David Simon yeah. series, you know, so...
0: You're like, well, this this is a particularly atmosphere-driven... <laughs> se- was, was it, the, was it the, te- the... It was the, the s- second season. Oh, the doc the, season. The doc season. Okay, right. The doc season, That's yeah, That's so. probably a good one to do out of sequence, right? Yeah. It's the most... Yeah. It feels the most dissonant with what's come before.
1: And interestingly, it, it took me really to the end of the series yep. um, before I realised yep. that I'd actually watched it out of
0: sequence. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that, in that second season of The Wire... Not knowing much about it at the time, I had no sense that the stories were going to eventually link back. Mm. I thought each se- I thought it was going to be an anthology mm. series, mm. basically, yeah. set in Baltimore.
1: Yeah, I remember coming to The Wire and all I knew that it was very uh, acclaimed. I had no mm. I- idea about the relationship from one... Uh, series to the next and mm. I was quite startled when obviously season two uh, opens on the docks and completely you know
0: resituates the whole show mm. and characters who were central become peripheral mm. and vice versa. They get folded back into the texture I mean it's just funny it's just taking you back to the remember that in, I mean I was just talking to some people today about how incredible House of Cards and Oranges and New Black were because they were the first series I saw that you could stream the whole thing in one go. I'm mm. just thinking back, you know, the, an earlier iteration of that, how incredible it was to have a DVD box set in your hands. Yes. And that cornucopia of episodes to yes. kind of go through. Yes. And it's, I think,
1: yeah, I think The Wire, that was where, how a lot of people consumed mm. The Wire. And I think that's where The, the Wire took off when people mm. could actually binge watch it. On these big DVD box mm. sets, and that does pose the question. I'm interested in learning what you think. Does David do David Simon shows work better watching episodically, week by
0: week, mm. or binging? So this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think maybe you have to differentiate there between the series series and the mini series. Mm. And you know, the shows that the mini series, like The Corner, like Show Me a Hero, I think they're set up paradoxically, even though they're shorter, they're set up to watch week by week. Mm. Whereas the long form series you kinda need to mm. immersively binge in. And yet this is a strange combination. Mm. Well I guess it in a way it is good. I mean he's done earlier series like The Corner about Baltimore that are limited series. But I mean this is such a strange experience we own this city, isn't it? Because it's like it's like seeing the wire. I mean it's it's the wire twenty years later. Yes. It's returning to the wire twenty years later. But with only six or eight episodes I instead know, of five I, seasons, I know. And
1: I think that's um, that's somewhat frustrating. Yep. Um, you know, paradoxically, the the um, the less of this, um, the you know, the more you want, you know, a, a big sprawling series in some ways. And the way this is set up, mm. we own the city, does gesture towards that very panoramic, well, exactly sprawling yep. canvas. And I was wondering how is he going to be able to to contain yeah. this and constrain this so well. that it makes sense narratively in just six episodes
0: well this is the issue isn't it i mean it's although the take a show like show me a hero it follows a very clear trajectory about one character one Mm. politician whereas you know in this case although we're dealing with baltimore in only a six episode arc the mean there are things about the style that are very different but the the sprawl is not different no so it's weird watching this pilot I had this kind of strange experience where I felt almost disincentivized to watch the rest of it just because, you know, you to invest in that kind of... Because a lot of the pilot is quite hard to follow at times. Oh, I think absolutely. It's very hard to... It's, oh, very, yeah. it's very dense. Like <laughs> very you, think, and we'll, information dense. We'll get to this with Shining Girls too. I think we've got two pilots this week that are difficult to follow in different ways. Mm. But it's, it's dense and you just have to... I mean, it's almost like in the original first season of the why it took me six episodes just to figure out what was happening yes do you know what i mean and here we have only six episodes so it's a strange feeling to kind of just start that very slow gradual process of sinking into something only to know it's going to be over as soon as you've acclimatized yourself (laughs) which is (laughs) i I agree it's it's a weird i agree there's something dissonant about it as a text
1: yeah and i think that's that's really the the experience of the um uh, the David Simon experience, in some ways, it's like being embedded mm. with a group of professionals, in some ways. Yep. So, you know, whether war correspondent, like a or, drive along, exactly, yep. exactly. And I think that's a that's a you know, in some ways, wonderful mm. um, experience for the for the audience because you know it it really respects the intelligence of the mm. audience, mm. Um, it respects their ability to to keep up with what's happening mm. uh, narratively and to to gradually understand the characters and their motivations. And compared to, I think, a lot of uh, TV series where it seems like you know it's all about selling the pilot, mm. uh, where they need, they need to sort of pursue a lot of paint by num- numbers approaches mm. and you know explain or explicate the subtext in quite a hand fisted way. Uh, the third the third series that we're going <laughs> to consider to, uh, yeah. tonight might or, be or, uh, or guilty of yeah. that. <laughs> Def-
0: defending Jacob, <laughs> yes, family family thinking issue, but yeah. you know what, I mean there is we see two kinds of pilots, don't you know? we? We see these kind of really awkwardly expository pilots. Well, we just see lazy pilots mm. that just give nothing, and the offer is kind of both. Yeah. But but this, this is definitely a good-faith pilot, and oh, it's, it's a pilot that, that offers you an immediate... Although I've just realised, Tim, should we, should we say what it's about? Yeah, just, just, so, just to clarify, because yeah. it, it is ostensibly <laughs> about one specific aspect of Baltimore life, ostensibly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right, that's yeah.
1: right. So uh, We Own the City, it's an American miniseries, so yeah. it is only uh, six episodes long. Mm. and it's so based, only, only six. Yeah, yeah, only six, yeah. yeah. It's based on a non-fiction book. Um, of the same name by the Baltimore Sun reporter Justin Fenton um, developed by obviously you know gods of crime fiction mm. uh, George Pelicanos who's mm. famous for writing uh, crime fiction about uh, Washington mm. Washington DC so he's a great chronicler of Washington mm. DC um, noir and David Simon of mm. course who uh, who's nonfiction mm. uh, books, The Corner, yep. um, Homicide, Homicide, yep. uh, you know, classics of the mm. the true crime genre, and I'm I'm a huge fan of his mm. his writing as well as mm. his his show show running as well. Um, this um, the six episodes were directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, mm. who also has a bit of a, a reputation as a director, who most recently directed King Richard. Oh, um, right, yeah. So they um, premiere they HBO and in Australia on mm. on binge now. Part one, um, which we're chronicling over there, um, premiered on April the 25th. Now, to describe actually what happens in mm-hmm. part one um, is really a bit of an exercise in futility. But what we do know is that there, there is an ostensible protagonist here yep. um, who's played by um, John Burnthal. Not a Billy actor.
0: <laughs> I don't know why. Not, just, not a Burnthal fan. <laughs> I, I find it just, it just gives off a sanctimonious vibe to me. I mean, it works here. Yes, it works here. Yes, well, his and, character
1: is very sanctimonious.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, it starts with a 15-minute sanctimonious monologue from him. Yes. I mean, you know, there's, there's traces of Walking Dead there. Um, but, yeah, is it also worth mentioning it's about the Gun Trace Task Force? Yes, Which yes. Which I didn't know much about before reading what this was about. Yes, yeah. and,
1: and I didn't really know much about after no. watching the pilot either, No, <laughs> to no, I I, Wikipedia I couldn't quite is. figure out what they exactly did other than maybe... Uh, pursue leads to confiscate my, my, illegal weapons. Yeah,
0: is my it? sense was that, that as the title made name the Gun Trace Task Force was just basically about seeking out and controlling gun usage in the community. That's all it's really its job was. But mm. it became notorious as a site of police corruption, brutality, and kind of it seems like large-scale, almost like embezzlement... Not embezzlement of police resources, but acquisition of resources I mean, embezzlement's the wrong word, but seizing yeah. seizing resources from people illegally and, and, then, and yeah read and sometimes cash, I think yeah. as well. so it's it's a case study. I could be wrong about that, but it's a so it's a case study of a particular moment in police mm. brutality. Mm. Um, yeah in, see, in Baltimore yeah. in the mid in the mid twenty tens. We see some yep. sort
1: of uh, documentary footage about yeah. this this um, you know, particular uh, mm. corrupt task force that suggests it's 1930s yep. you know style uh, gangster behavior yep. but we don't really get that sense in the in the opening it's only really very yep. lightly foreshadowed what's to come
0: and it's interesting you say you know the documentary footage because i mean i think there are a couple of things that i found interesting about this but you know one of them is it, it clarifies how much televisual texture has changed since mm. the wire so you know you think of the wire i mean it's got such a it's got such a sticky, you know, rich sense of place mm. and style and it's so drenched in old-fashioned equipment and yeah. anal- analogue technology. Like, you know, part of the point of the wire is the technology they're using at the time is antiquated even then. Mm. Where, and e- even that opening credit song is so kind of atmospheric, mm. whereas here it's a much cooler and flatter aesthetic. Like the mm. opening, you know, credit sequence is almost like a series of photographs you know, with the sound of a camera clicking. The opening monologue by John Bernthal is intercut with montage sequences, short montage sequences. Um, There's a lot of just shots of, you know, computer laptop screens Mm. with data. There's, there's, you know, surveillance footage, security footage. It's almost like the style of it captures a world where recording devices are now omniscient Mm. and where anyone on the street has a phone and anyone can film police and anyone can, you know, can can provide that documentary insight. So whereas, you know, the beginning, there's such a strong sense of it just being disseminated on television and on DVD. Here we're speaking to a world where everybody contains, everybody owns recording Mm, devices. And there's a different kind of digital, and especially because The Wire was about omniscience. Yes. There's a different threshold of omniscience now, of digital omniscience. And
1: a different momentum. I guess that explains the slightly fractured quality of the narrative and the fractured shot. very
0: short images, very short, flat images. Yes. It doesn't have that same sense of. Visual depth. No, I think that the wire has no, yeah. no, and I
1: think that's really interesting. I mean, it does capture something about, in some ways, the heightened visibility of policing. Yep, because we have all these disparate sources for, yep. for you know, monitoring, recording, yes. and rendering them accountable. But also at the same time, that partial visibility that you get when things are you know, ostensibly giving you complete transparency, but yep. actually not because they're selective or partial in some way. I ways. think
0: it's that to some... I can't remember who said it, but some French theorist, but idea of you surveillance, surveillance yeah. from below. Yeah. It also feels... I mean, it's weird, like, it's set before Trump's election. Yes. But it feels very post... You know, George Floyd, like it feels very, you know, in, like, you know, it, it starts with, you know, that that perennial David Simon Topos, the corner, yes. is now reimagined as a site of unjustified, you know, police stops. Yes. And it's full of just moments of, you know, white on black police brutality captured through smartphones. It's just, it's interesting because, yeah, I know, I, so I'm just thinking it through to myself, like The Wire is so much about that. What does it take to be omniscient? Mm. Those conditions have changed now that everyone has smartphones and it mm. changes the look of the show as well yeah and and the the, the style of the show yeah. as well yeah
1: and I, I think it's it's quite interesting so we, we it seems mm. to trace a couple of you know, disparate threads that mm. don't quite yet hang together mm. um obviously john Bernthal and his um you know trace task force uh obviously you know foreshadowed to be the, the central part of this but then we they are also uh, following two police officers who were mm. operating in the in the baltimore county or maryland county yep. yep um and that that plot again it's not been quite woven into the overall um tapestry of this yes. of this pilot uh we also have another um sort of I guess you know narrative uh where we have a series of um African American attorneys mm. who are operating in the civil rights um civil rights office who mm. are trying to hold um Baltimore police officers accountable for these arbitrary stop stop and searches mm. and and um we, we also follow one of the you know uh, presumably corrupt cops in, in Josh Charles. That's a serial offender. Such a great piece of yes. casting, like Josh,
0: because <laughs> I feel like Josh Charles he often plays characters who have a kind of a cocky but deserved moralism. Yes. So to see him play this moralistic <laughs> corrupt cop that is a genius piece of casting. It really works. It, it really does. Yeah, yeah, it it's really a kind works. a Bloated,
1: dissolute, um, you know, you know, immoral prick, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I do I did really enjoy those sequences. Yeah, he
0: was great. Yeah. Um it's funny like and just hearing it say like, it, like it clarifies that in a way, I think the pleasure of this show will not lie in any one subplot but the movement between them. Like mm. so much of it is about and you know, I love this kind of, mo- such a David Simon moment, shifting from, say, the corner to City Hall, Yeah. so shifting from those police spaces, those administrative spaces, and it, it's almost a bit like the director Frederick Wiseman, like, he is so good at doing, like, administrative procedure, <laughs> so there's a lot of great scenes, because uh, part of it is about trying to get rid of one corrupt cop in particular, yes. the Josh Carls character, who obviously is a moral blight on the city, but also just an administrative nightmare, yeah. <laughs> so the way in which all this stuff gets reduced to administration, yeah. there's something, and bureaucracy, like, like, there's something, yeah. there were times when, you know, I almost treated each story as a self-contained thing. And although I couldn't grasp the whole from the pilot, I love the kind of rhythm, the procedural rhythms. Yes. And especially those, yeah, those movements between the streets and City Hall yes. is just, he does that so well. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: that theme that's always, you know, really resonant in, in David Simon mm. shows about how institutions yep. constrain individual agency yeah, yeah. and the absurdities of mm. bureaucracy and the paradoxes. Yep. Um, or was the you know kafkaesque quality of this but never, of this uh bureaucracy
0: yeah but never turning into overt satire just a feeling just l- l- sinking into the rhythm of it and just yes. letting it strange like almost making bureaucracy and administration uncanny or strange yes. just by presenting it Not, by presenting it in a naturalistic manner but with juxtap but but at the same time juxtaposing it with other stuff that's violent or other yeah. stuff that it's just it's just a really it's you know yeah. it's, it's systemic exactly, like it's a yeah. really powerful systemic yeah. vision of a systemic critique and you know. yeah
1: yeah I, I i agree it never really rises to the level of absurdity but you mm. do see you know individuals being uh you know frustrated mm. um this just constant sense of you know the limits of what an individual can do mm. especially those with the reformist agenda yep and there's, i think the great paradox about mm. you know the josh charles character mm. whereby you know he has the most number of complaints of any police officer but He's actually a, an asset to yes. the police force because yep. he actually makes arrests. So I think, out of that, you know, quantitative metric, yep. he's a you know, he's he's actually valuable.
0: So I think that that is almost the core scene of the episode, right? Like that cost-benefit analysis mm. of police brutality versus not even justified arrests or you know good arrests, but just number of arrests. Yes. So just <laughs> you know, just pure quantity of arrests versus, and that yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, so on that note, something I wondered is. You know, obviously, at some level, it's part of the extended universe of the Wire because it's it's all the same city. But I wonder if we'll see any traces. I, there's a few characters I feel like, or actors I recognise from the Wire. Yeah. But will there be? It's only six episodes. But will there yeah. be any? I mean, be in,
1: hilarious that they brought in characters from the Wire. given yeah. this is actually a non-fiction book. Yeah, exactly. Fictional characters. Omar comes back.
0: <laughs> but 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 just because you know the Wire was obviously based on some real characters. Yeah. So yeah. or homicide, like, will there will there be residues of the? I mean, there's obviously residues of the Wire. Style-wise, yeah, will there be residues of the wire in terms of characterisation, yeah. in terms of figures that you see? I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is very interesting mm. just to return to Baltimore 20 years mm. later and see that, you know, the the is even more <laughs> is even more systematic.
0: And we live, you know, we live at a time too where, you know, especially television about social justice issues can often be very heavy-handed. Yes. Um, and I just think that there is there there is something I really love about a pilot like this, which is obviously deeply invested in these issues of identity and class but the way it takes us into it is through this immersive textural Definitely. evocation of the entire world in which it's happening like it's yeah. it's just it's more it's more interesting it's more engaging yeah. it's more complex and it's just it's more televisual yeah. so I, I think it's there's
1: something you know quintessentially televisual about any sort of procedural yeah and I to agree. to address these these mm. big hot-button issues mm. through this mm. this this genre is particularly effective and that documentary style you know fly on the wall mm. uh realism um is you know is you know you know it's the it verisimilitude it it engages us and mm. and it, it does mitigate against that that kind of heavy-handed moralism that yep. does sink i think a lot of a lot of shows that mm. deal with these similar issues
0: so look i mean i I've, i felt a lot of feelings watching this like i was you know, I felt kind of sobered in a way by how much... I mean, obviously, the content is sobering, but sobered in a way by how much has changed in 20 years of television mm. and how... It's funny, I was talking to some people the other day who said that they love early 2000s and mid-2000s television because they love the sheen of it mm. and they love the kind of the the granularity of it none of that is here and <laughs> no. this, this is this is as crisp as can be and it made me realize how much i love that texture so there's something i felt almost elegiac for the wire after watching this right and did you like did you like this uh, so yes i so yes i mean at one level i loved it but another level i feel frustrated because you know maybe it also clarifies that the viewing habits around a show like the Wire of Change, like twenty years ago, this is, like we said, these are the first six episodes you watch to mm. get into it. Mm. and but now the first six episodes are all there is. Mm. So I feel I, mean, I will obviously I'll watch it all, mm. but I feel conflicted about it, I feel strangely tortured by it, yeah. even though I really thought I, I loved it. Yeah,,
1: yep. yeah, I, I, I agree. So for a pilot that you know mm. was just so difficult to follow narratively, mm. it does make you feel slightly frustrated that mm. again. Uh, by the time you actually clue mm. on to what's happening and who the main characters are, it's over.
0: And you know, not to be you know, oh, things were better in my day, but just maybe a tiny sneaking suspicion that will a, could a show like The Wire be made again? Do you mm. know what I mean? Like, are we ha- have we part, or just an awareness that that particular iteration of quality television, of the sprawling, novelistic DVD set, is now very much a thing of the past. So mm. I feel I feel a melancholy, <laughs> I feel a melancholy, a bittersweet melancholy watching this, even though I really. Really liked it, and partly because I thought it was a real return to form in terms of the yeah. subject matter. The, and the subject style.
1: matter is is great. I mean, is this is this like you know seeing yeah. you know a great novelist yep. return with a short story collection?
0: Yeah, that's it. exactly <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is, and you know just seeing him back in Baltimore too. I mean, you know, I don't know like you know, Baltimore to David Simon is like De Niro to Scorsese. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's his it's his muse. It's his. Do yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah. actually. Oh. Wait, wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, York. yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I, I, I thought oh. for a moment I thought I said Pacino because Pacino had not been in the, but yeah, yeah, De Niro. It's like it's, it's, it's like Baltimore is his, the actor he communes with yeah. and the space he communes with. So, yeah. look, yeah. I'm 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 an in, but it's there's a melancholy and a bittersweet quality to it. Yeah,
1: I, I agree, I yeah.
0: agree. Um, but I'm almost certainly into. Yep, yeah, me too. Okay, so now from one somewhat opaque pilot uh, to the next. Oh yeah. Um. The, the next show this week is Shining Girls. And this is the show I think it has stayed with me most this week. Right. So let, me, let me talk through what it's about right. and my initial impressions. Got your shine on. I got my shine on. I got my shine <laughs> on. So it's um, it's based on a novel by Lauren Bukes, a 2013 novel. Yeah, you Bukes that? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm team Bukes. Um, what's your
1: favourite? Uh, what else do you like by Lauren Bukes? Um, I do like her South African set series of short sci-fi comics
0: no, this is the only thing she's ever written. I've, I've got no idea. I've got, we, we don't research as much as we should. Um, so let me kind of talk through how it presents itself. So the series opens with a prologue in which a young woman, a young girl, 78 years old, is playing on a on a stoop in New York on a in on front of a brownstone. A guy who we later learn is called Harper Curtis, played by Jamie Bell, mm. comes up and acts in a creepy way, asks her to play with him, kills a bee... We jump to the present mm. where Elizabeth Moss plays a character called Kirby Masrachi, who appears to be the same woman who mm. suffered this trauma. She's living in what what appears to be New York City and from the beginning of the Chicago. Of course of course the L. Of course at yeah. Chicago. Um and she seems to experience time lapses or mm. disruptions in temporality that see her mistaking places for other places and people for other people. And she becomes involved indirectly in the case of another person who's been you know, targeted and killed by what appears to be the same man who hasn't aged. Mm. So what emerges from that is that it seems to be a, a serial killer who is involved in time travel in some way or mm. who bends time around him. Now, this is a, a series, I, I started it for the first 20 minutes. I was really disengaged. I had no idea what was happening, even though I love Elizabeth and I found it flat. But over time, after watching it, I sunk into it, Mm. and it's continued to resonate with me. Kind of like Kirby. After watching it. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think what I loved about it is that it's a period piece and a homage to a particular kind of film that I love. So various hints, I think, make it clear that this is set in some version of the late 90s.
1: Well, I think there's a there's a little title card that yep. has, I think, 1965 and then 1992.
0: 1992, okay. Yeah.
1: But then, again, there's no title card that indicates whether we've jumped forward to yeah, the Yeah, that's
0: present. my sense. That's, th- that's
1: what's, I think, particularly uh, confusing. Disorienting.
0: Yeah. So my sense is, in terms of affect or mood then, I associate this series with a particular kind of cinema that became really prominent in the late 90s on the verge of the millennium. And these were films, especially American films, that suggested the emergence and the kind of convergence of a new world order. So a world beneath the world that we know emerging gradually in mysterious ways, but also all different parts of our world starting to converge in ways we couldn't quite grasp. Mm. And I think these films are often about digital technology. So films I put in that category are films like The Matrix, Mm -hmm. Mm Pi, Blade, All films which suggest, yes, something emerging, something converging, and both of them associated with digital technology. And I I associate these kind of films with a kind of ambience or Mm. a prescience or a hush Mm. around the edges of the action. And I feel like this series is very much about that moment or a homage to that moment, and that two of its major tropes play into that moment as well. I mean, I think the two figures or two tropes that we used in the 90s to capture this were that of the serial killer and forensics and I feel Mm. like this series captures both the serial killer and the practice of forensics as a site of this new emergent world order so that's what I kind of loved about it and I think the reason it took a while to sink in is because it has that very emergent mood so to just give one example of that sorry I've been talking a little bit the series has all these different threads and different types of arcane knowledge that don't quite come together mm. and as in so many of these 90s films the end of violence is another one there's kind of a network space or a control deck space where they all come together so the observatory in this film mm. in this series there's this observatory that looks over the city and that's full of screens and these disruptions these emergences, ramify first at the conservatory mm. sorry observatory and the most visceral moment in the film when the serial killer removes someone's organs takes place in the heart of the observatory, which is the most kind of virtual space in the film, mm. in, in the series, sorry. So I just... It, that's what I loved about it. Like, it really reminds me of this moment in the late 90s where you sense this new virtual space emerging in a kind of ambient and hushed way.
1: Mm. Well, there, there is... Um, that is, in some ways, uh, thematized yes, because... The Elizabeth Moss character hmm. we learn is an archivist. I yes, believe, yes, at absolutely. At the Chicago Sun Times, and there's a lot of talk there about you know the the death of print media. Yes, and um, just the the emerging role of you know archiving and the archivist and hmm. you know the digitization of archiving as absolutely. well. Yep. And, a- know, absolutely, and perhaps there is some sort of um, underlying. Maybe not quite allegory, but at least, at least idea or motif of this serial killer as somehow being able to to move through archives or so the mm. archive space um, in some ways. Yeah. And
0: so you think of someone like something like Seven, right, where you have mm. this this kind of this claustrophobic, shrouded kind of city, and the serial killer's final gesture is to propel them out of the city mm. to the kind of the power lines and the power grid that that networks it all. Yeah, it's like that serial killer is this figure of mystical emergence and convergence. Yeah, I feel like the serial killer plays a, a similar role here, and similarly with forensics. So I feel like there's this fascination in the '90s, I think, with forensics that reflects this idea of, of the virtual body. So in this in this series, whenever. The body becomes forensically dissected. this virtuality is laid over the top of it. So there's a fantastic scene where Elizabeth Moss, a doctor examines it turns out that the serial killer made an incision into Elizabeth Moss's body and re- re- removed some of her organs mm. and there's a very, very kind of visceral and you know physical discussion of the wound, the stu- you know the, the, the stutters on the wound, the kind of shape of the wound, the the organs that were removed. Mm. And then suddenly the Elizabeth Morris Moss character blinks and there's another different doctor there. So at this moment when the body is like at peak forensic scrutiny, all of a sudden it becomes virtual again. Mm. So it's like the, the forensic body becomes this place where the body is both visceral and disembodied. Mm. And that's something I felt about the series, right? Like it's this, there's this really gory serial killer operating and yet everything feels strangely disembodied Mm. in a way Mm. that i think is really resonant
1: yeah i think that's i think that's that's interesting as Mm. well because you know obviously this is this set here is just on the um on the precipice Mm. of a new um a new architecture for for explaining and accounting for the world which is this this virtual space and this virtual architecture Mm. and in this virtual space you can move back and forward through through different you know Uh, it's like hypertext yeah exactly that's right you can follow the the links you can move Mm. back and forward and Mm. there is a kind of unusual narrative momentum in this show where we are moving in a slightly dissociative state from one timeline to another
0: and it's hard to it's i mean it's remarkably opaque for a pilot right like it's audacious like it's hard to follow yeah even
1: scene to scene the way this obviously has been solved this is what i found Uh, slightly strange is the Mm. the way this has been sold is a very high concept you know serial killer procedural thriller Mm. Um, and in the trailers for this it tells you effectively what is only a real subtext in the pilot and that is this is a serial killer time travel uh thriller but you don't actually that's not disclosed in this pilot at all exactly
0: if i hadn't have known that I probably wouldn't have picked it up from the pile. No,
1: I don't, and I, even the, I subsequently watched the second episode, mm. and even then, mm. it's still withholding this information.
0: And it's it's funny, isn't it? Because I mean, it is such a mood piece. Like mm. it's you know, this sounds like it's a. I know it sounds like it, it would be an issue with the show, and yet it's. The mood is so intriguing mm. and this, the transitions are so intriguing. I mean, what you say about, like, a new kind of architecture, you know, the, the hub... I mean, I'm thinking, again, of you know, the end of Violence, this Vim Vendors film, where there's all this stuff that happens with Andy McDowell and Bill Pullman, but Gabriel Byrne plays, uh, if I recall correctly, a character who has an experimental, like, you know, observatory uh, like in LA who sees it all. And it's mm. like that here. Like, it all revolves around the observatory. But in terms of that architecture... A lot of it revolves around the display room in the observatory with Mm. the giant semicircular ceiling. Mm. And that to me, it feels like a limit space of 90s Mm. media. Like it's like a theme park ride or IMAX. Like there's like this spectacular architecture Mm. that is is the limit of how, how people can imagine connectedness. Yeah. But the serial killer and the forensically examined body are the next threshold. I think at one point they describe the serial killer as everyone, no one, everywhere, all the time. Mm. So it's just like, and yeah, you know, the fear of the serial killer is someone who operates through these invisible networks, mm. these invisible randomised networks, mm. Mm. and the serial killer that no killer one
1: does, sees. Yeah, he does. He does attain this this quality of almost omniscience because mm. he can predict people's futures in some ways and can speak mm. to them. Um, from the future there's, there's constant scenes of him approaching women you know whether are young or old and um approaching them as if they're you know already acquainted and then in some ways you know disarming them mm. um with the fact that they've already met mm. um so in some ways it's almost like recovering lost memories that haven't yet even been formed
0: and also that experience of not becoming networked, but realizing that you were already always networked by something higher than yourself, like yeah. that eerie. It's experience I, I remember a lot, like in the late '90s, of of realizing you were more networked than you thought you were, mm. or something like that. So, mm. yeah, it's just, and I think the reason it's fascinating to us, right? Like, I mean, this is this is my favorite, my favorite period of cinema is late '90s. You know late '90s cinema, and you know we love '90s horror and erotic thrillers. And I think it's partly because they have that same sense of emergence. There's this hush. There's this sense that we're watching this totalizing cinematic experience, but something else is creeping in. Like yeah. something else is creeping in to threaten it, and just that that ambience, you know, and mm. it's so is so compelling aesthetically, but also from the present where everything is networked and everyone's connected. Those first glimpses, yeah, of like Sleepless in Seattle, like you know, those first glimpses of connectivity, of something out there, mm. people mm. out there connected somehow, yeah, is so atmospheric. Yeah. And I think this, this is like a nostalgia. It's like a nostalgia for the future, yeah, for a version of the future that once existed. I think that's right. Yeah. Yes,
1: I, I agree. Like they're they're trying to engage with this. This emerging mm. uh, technology that's going to mm. completely shift the and way mood, people, yeah. yeah, experience the world mm. and you know, mediates mm. our encounter with the world in mm. some ways. So, you know, those those early kind of clumsy technologies yeah. that that only kind of prefigure what was later to come. Um, and
0: I feel like that makes it a great late night viewing experience because I associate you know, now night day whatever digital technology, but I yeah. associate that hush in the nineties with late night watching. yeah, Everything's quiet. You know, quite, you know it, uh, speaking of a film I watched late, late at night recently, it reminded me of The Bone Collector. Like, have you seen yeah. that recently? So, yeah. you know, for those haven't seen The Bone Collector, basic premise, Angelina Jolie is a detective. Mm. Denver Washington is a, a tetraplegic detective yeah. who can only only has control of one finger. Tetraplegic. And, yes. See, yeah, <laughs> I think that's what it's called when you only have, like, control of one yeah. small... And he kind of basically directs her virtually through the city. She becomes his avatar and he has this huge bank of screens in front of him (laughs) and through... So the city is in the process of becoming kind of... The serial killer there is a really network killer. Remember, he operates a taxi and he picks people up from random public transport hubs, stations, airports. So you have this network killer and the only way that Angelina Jolie can, can fight him... Is by with the help of Denzel Washington, who by virtue of being plugged into all these machines is already partly networked. Yes, and in that film, this new networked space is really associated with the underground parts of the city, oh, yeah. which really comes into play here <laughs> as well too. So that's right, just the sewer said, system, yeah, and rain. Like there's something about rain and technology in '90s mm. cinema. Like it's like rain, it's like something that rain it's like pixelated. Yeah, exactly. It's already proto digital. <laughs> yeah, like 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 the, the green rain in the Matrix, but yeah. also. It's like rain is like the last burst of dank physicality before the digital takes over yeah. or something. But yeah, it reminded me of yeah, both The Matrix and the Bone Collector. It's just it's my favorite it's my favourite <laughs> register. So I I found myself just sinking into this and, and kind of thinking about it for days after I watched it. It yeah. really stayed with me.
1: It's it's a bold pilot because yeah. Audacious the yeah. central character is so unknowable even to herself. Yes. There's just there's full of these moments where she completely dissociates. Mm. Characters change, timelines change. It's
0: quite Lynchian. It Remind me of David Lynch
1: at times. Yeah, don't you think? yeah, yeah. And Lost Highway. And there were times in this pilot where I was thinking, I just this is just too hard to follow. Mm. I don't know who these people are. And I was kind of out towards the middle, but then I definitely by the end, it kind of I like mm. was kind of snapped back to being yep. to being in again, um, because of its audacity. Yeah. Um, and because also there yeah there's there's an interesting texture to this show that is, is worth watching. And, I, you know, epitomized I think, in some ways, by The Serial Killer, who, who's really, um, you know, motivated by kind of leaving mementos, mm. uh, in some cases, in his victims' exactly, bodies. Like exactly, exactly. Kind of little breadcrumb trails mm. um, to mark his passage through mm. through time and through mm. their through their bodies and mm. through these different um, t- timelines in some ways as well. So who knows what the actual big sci-fi, uh, mm. you know, concept is that that undergirds this whole this whole series because even you know at the end of it, episode two it's still quite opaque
0: and maybe this is part of the pleasure because like a film like the bone collector you know or a film like pie for example i kind of never wanted it to get to the story i just wanted to bask in that <laughs> emergence forever yeah so this is kind of almost like that it's just like <laughs> mysterious atmospheric emergence yeah which is in a way lynch is also like Lynchian too like king yeah. peaks is just yeah. emergence so set in chicago yep yeah, exactly set in <laughs> chicago um so, look, I thought this was I'm, – I'm shining. I thought this was –
1: this really <laughs> – Get it, your shine on.
0: It, it, it reminded me of, you know, listening to – like like when I got into Bjork, listening to some, a piece of music and finding it off, putting it first, but then it comes back to haunt you and you need to watch more of it. So, mm. I, this is, this is to me, the show – I love We Own um, This City, but this is, to me, the intriguing show of the week. It's mm. really stayed with me. So, mm. I'm a hard in. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think this is another example of you know Apple TV Plus yep. taking some big risks, big swings. Hi, Dave. One uh, of our good friends, Dave, <laughs> is
0: a very big Apple TV Plus advocate. So, Dave, win for Apple TV Plus.
1: <laughs> it's a big swing. Um, I think I'm a provisional yep. in. Yep. Um, and I think I ho- I'm interested to see where, this, where yeah. this goes.
0: me too. Loved it.
1: Okay, on to our third series for this week, uh, The Offer. So, The Offer is a biographical uh, drama miniseries about the development and production of Francis Ford Coppola's landmark film, *The Godfather*. Mm. So, the miniseries largely centres around, or in the years preceding the uh, the um, the release of *The Godfather*, and concerns the very troubled production history mm. of this film. Now, what was quite interesting about about this series was I, uh, coincidentally, was reading a a book about the making of *The Godfather* mm. fairly recently mm. called. Uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli, mm. and um, was really astounded by the shenanigans that were going on mm. um, on the set here, um, the incredible conflict, the the massive um, you know collision of egos that occurred here, mm. and also the very real involvement and appeasement of the mob mm. and mob bosses mm. in. In uh, New York and, and L A, mm. and I think uh, was
0: the Frank Sinatra stuff true that he was displeased by it? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yes,
1: and the the, the conflicts. There's
0: um, a great scene here where Frank Sinatra confronts Mario Puzo in a restaurant and says how much he hates the idea of it. So that that's real. That yeah, happened. Wow.
1: Yeah. So the backstory um, behind all the, all the characters, mm. um, you know, all the all the main um, you know characters in in this in this real story are pretty incredible. So mm. the backstory of Mario Mario Puzo who. Um, was effectively, you know, a struggling and maybe even failing mm. author who was severely in debt um, before he effectively had, you know, he was resorting to, to ghostwriting, mm. um, you know, pot boilers mm. for, you know, for crime magazines just to, to pay the bills. Mm. He was a, you know, chronic gambler um, and, that, and that, that was overeater.
0: I had no idea, like, I mean, I... I had no idea. So one thing I'll say about this show is that a lot of the information is interesting Mm. Um, and I I had no idea that Mario Puzo had styled himself as a serious writer and that he, before The Godfather, and even written like some children's books, I think, and only wrote The Godfather, wrote it very um, grudgingly, you know, because he didn't want to exploit Italian American heritage like that, and considered it really just like a hack exercise to make money. Yeah, yeah. So I, he was paying uh, the bills. So yeah. I think this,
1: I think obviously with the novel, you know, combined his you know more serious literary ambition with this kind of flair, sure. flair that he got from sure. from yeah. writing a lot of yep. uh, genre fiction. Yep. But I, have you read The Godfather? I
0: never have. No, no. I haven't either. No.
1: Uh, but apparently, it is it is actually quite schlocky in mm. some in some mm. respects. Uh, it's full of. Sex every few
0: pages, violence, and and a deliberate strategy to keep the Mm. the viewer engaged. It's funny, isn't it, to think that a that a novel which is so obviously written in a mercenary way Mm. gave way to what's considered one of the greatest masterpieces of American cinema. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's right, Mm. that's right. And and you know, obviously, a lot of the um, the pilot here does concern the big uh, you know conflict of egos between Mm. uh, Robert Evans, who was the head of Mm. Paramount Paramount Pictures, Mm. uh, his boss Charlie Mm. Blue Dawn. Who was a an Eastern European immigrant who who struck it rich? Mm. Um, I think with uh, pursuing some uh, disparate business interests before he got involved in Hollywood because mm. he wanted the you know the glamour and, and the glitz and and Francis Ford Coppola, you know, a tourist director who was uh, effectively demanded a lot of creative control over this. And,
0: and that 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 bit was really interesting too, just because they you know recently. Um, my partner I can't I watched all of Francis Ford Coppola's films or rewatch chronologically and I, I think the last one before The Godfather is The Rain people. Mm. And it's such a big jump from that to The Godfather. I guess he wrote Patton in between, but it's such it's such a big jump. I, I remember wondering like, you know, what what happened in between those films? And the series does capture the improbability mm. of Francis Ford Coppola being the person to direct it mm. and the way he put his spin on it. And also Captures the slightly pontificating manner that Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> can have, as well as not just the oturist, auteur, but the self-appointed auteurist Yeah. So what
1: was interesting as well, I thought presumably the Godfather, you know, was a best-selling author, mm. been on the number, you know, number mm. one best-selling uh, mm. book for for a year. Mm. You think this is a no-brainer one? Just give them a big budget, mm. full creative control. But what's interesting about this part is it, you know, delves into the fact that you know there were, you know, there were pretty um, strong budgetary constraints they had to mm. operate under. There had been. The last, uh, you know, three or four gangster pictures had been big flops. Mm. Um, a lot of the the main cast here were really unknowns, mm. and even someone like Francis Ford Coppola didn't really have a big filmography, no. or reputation, no, before this was made. So,
0: and it is, and just to kind of put that another way, interesting, you know, for a film that's as canonical as The Godfather, you know, especially Part One and Two, in which films that canonical often seem to have arrived just fully formed. Yeah. So to hear about all the contingencies. And weird chant stuff that happened in the background right down to considering other actors like Robert Redford for the role I mean that you know that's interesting to hear about that yeah and just to yeah just to see how messy things yeah. were behind the scenes And
1: that expression you know success has many fathers failure yeah. has none yeah exactly and I think when this did become a success um, all the different uh, players claimed to yep. have really written yep. this this the story. text in some ways and
0: it's interesting too because I mean one of the things I mean thought so we're talking at the moment about information that I found interesting. <laughs> we'll come back to the pilot itself in a moment, but um, you know, one of the things that's a bit hard to judge about this pilot, even though I did judge it, um, is that you know you don't see much about the shooting of it. No, and I, I, it's interesting because I wonder if this this will become to the Godfather, or what it's going for is it, it wants to stand in relation to the Godfather, a bit like Hearts of Darkness stands in relation to Apocalypse Now. Like I I can see the this framing. Because for those who haven't seen Hearts of Darkness, it's a documentary by Eleanor Coppola about Francis Ford Coppola making Apocalypse Now, and it's you know it's a remarkable documentary about him. You know, like you know, Martin Sheen getting a heart attack, you know, renting helicopters in the Philippine government. It, you know, it basically presents the filming of Apocalypse Now as almost killing Francis Ford Coppola. And I wonder whether this is going to go for a similar thing to mm. kind of present The Godfather as actually an equally. Equally heroic labor, I think so. From Coppola as well, it's I think it's, so. it's that level. So it's it's interesting, and that's that stuff you don't get much of a sense of from this first episode. I, I imagine the series picks up once we get into the actual filming, yeah, of it. Yeah, um,
1: there's there's an enormous amount of um, archival material around yep. the making of the yes. Godfather, really yep. detailed shooting diaries, yep. um, lots of different um, you know diary accounts from those who were yep. the major players here. I think one of the curious decisions mm. in this. Um, series is who they make their protagonist slash hero. Mm. So they decide to to center this this series around one of the producers, Al Ruddy, played by Miles, Miles Teller, mm. and they really lionize him as being in effect mm. the um, the unknown hero behind mm. you know who shepherded this particular film, mm. um, you know this this idea, this novel, mm. um, into the fully fledged you know canonical classic that it's considered today. And I, I, I believe that is pretty ahistorical, the
0: and, and first I, point. And I wonder if this, you know, and look, I have to be honest with you, although I found the story interesting, I actually really disliked this pilot as right. a pilot. And I wonder if there is part of the same issue here that we saw with something like Gaslit, where I felt like there was a lot of, at times, turgid historical texture in search of a protagonist yeah. or in search of a story, which I thought was kind of ironic given that there were obviously so many charismatic figures and players. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was. It rubbed me up the wrong way that it was an hour and four minutes to begin with. Yeah, it is. Like, like it's when, a very long. Like, whenever a pilot, pilot is, like, I feel like I feel like no pilot has any business being over an hour, <laughs> yeah. let alone this one. Especially when it's four minutes. I mean, Even if it's one minute, <laughs> yeah. even one minute over an it's hour. Gesture of bad faith rubs me up the wrong way. like it
1: effectively a feature length movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, is is as gesture. Of and bad
0: it's just faith. messy. And I mean, like, I thought. I felt mixed like well, I didn't feel because I didn't like it. But the story is so interesting. So I went and read about it afterwards. But I just felt like it got to me it got the hammiest kind of again, just like generic seventies period piece. I kind of same same as Gaslit. Without without I just felt like saying to the creators, I mean, firstly, get a friggin' editor. But like <laughs> secondly, you know, Generic 70s texture doesn't stand in for characterization no. and plot development, especially when you've got such a great story on your hands. So I just, I, I guess I felt frustrated. Because I kind of thought that it was a wasted opportunity. And I, I found it really boring. Say. I mean, I felt like it, did, it didn't quite know what it wanted to do. Like, was it going for naturalism or was it going for hyperbole? I mean, I thought Giovanni Ribisi really <laughs> leaned into the hyperbole. But it was in this weird space, which is actually a bit like Gaslit as well, where it's obviously leaning into the hyperbole of shows like American Crime Story and, yeah. you know, period pieces in that ilk. But it doesn't have the conviction to go all the way. But it isn't content with naturalism either. So it's in this weird, slightly parodic, slightly buffoonish space yeah. that's neither fish nor fowl that I just found a bit, a bit boring and a bit turgid. I yeah. have to
1: say. Well, I think the length can partly be accounted for the fact that they they wanted to really jump ahead in some ways to really sure. um, capture the audience's attention. In relation to the real involvement of the mob yep. in this story, and I, that that did not really come in no. till later
0: on. That and that I thought that's um, it's interesting because that bit I didn't know was true, mm, but that felt like the most fictionalised part of it, yeah. or at least at least integrated. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Like they they don't want to spend too much yeah. time on the series before we get to the making of it.
1: Yes, and there's there's, there's some elements here which I've read about which are just very ahistorical. Yep. So it centres on Al Ruddy, who who really uh, before working you know um, in Hollywood was a was a programmer at the Rand Corporation, mm-hmm. but then made his reputation um, through pitching um, and effectively being the proto showrunner of Hogan's Heroes. Yes, um, and this the way this pilot construes it is if that is just very soon before um, him, you know, becoming a producer on The Godfather. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I think the things happen five years apart. Well,
0: and, and also that makes sense because you know this this protagonist moving from Hogan's Heroes to The Godfather, it feels very implausible and very rushed. Mm. I mean. Yeah, and, look, moments like that, I mean, the way I'll put it is, it felt to me like cosplay reenactment. Yes. Like, rather than genuine dramatisation. And not to be a film snob, but, like, when it's a film that's up there with The Godfather... You want if you're going to make a film a series about that I want there to be some genuine dramatization in there yeah it's funny too I wondered whether this this felt like a bit of a myth of origin for Paramount plus <laughs> Actually, like cause the, well, cause like it's interesting isn't it because yeah. it, it's almost like it's almost like the subtext was the Godfather was the first Paramount plus because <laughs> it's on this Paramount plus yeah, it's almost I like don't. the subtext is The Godfather was the first Paramount plus release because in the first 10 minutes. I reckon we see the Paramount logo 40 times. Yes. Like on buildings, on trucks. And the, I reckon, like, you know, there's so many discussions of Paramount. Yes. Of the Paramount brand, a, of
1: what it means for Paramount. It's a very interesting and possibly yeah. self-indulgent branding opportunity. <laughs> uh, that,
0: that's my for sense. For Paramount. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's
1: going really back to the origins. Yeah. Um,
0: I, of... I wondered historically, did the Godfather rescue Paramount or was it the inception of Paramount?
1: So my understanding is obviously, you know, Robert Evans was a very famous, um, you know, head of the studio. Who yeah. Who was very famous for, you know, shepherding talent. Yep. So and, I know it didn't create Paramount,
0: but did it, yeah. it, it, it inflect Paramount in a new way.
1: Um, I I think um, it was the really the start of that that wave of really critically okay. acclaimed films. But okay. I, Love Story um, was, I think, the the film that really rescued okay. um, Paramount financially. Yep, Arthur. Um, oh,
0: and Arthur Hill is in this yes. briefly, which is yeah, yeah that's briefly, interesting. Yeah.
1: yeah. So. Look, I agree with almost everything you said. This is this pilot is too mm, long. Mm. Uh, it's ahistorical. Mm. historical. Uh, the characters are all caricatures, almost mm. without exception. Every performance is an extremely broad
0: performance, but not. But also not broad enough. So I just, I just found it turgid. Like I just found it. I found it lowest common denominator seventies period yeah. piece, which for, a f- for something about such an idiosyncratic seventies text. Yeah, I just and I hated that it was over an hour.
1: <laughs> that that rubbed me up the wrong yeah. way from the beginning. Uh, Miles Teller as our uh, Ruddy's—it's a very Miles Teller performance. Yeah, it's a very. And look,
0: I mean, he was he was actorly and swaggerly I mean, I, I didn't mind that. Like, I didn't mind the sweat. I mean, Matthew Good's very swaggery too. <laughs> as I mean, I didn't mind that. I just again, it reminded me of Gaslit. I just thought it was like turgid historical texture in search of a story. Okay. Even though in both cases, there's a great true story to be okay. told.
1: Um, yeah, so look, I, I agree with almost everything you say. Um, But I really like this. Yep. And I found it really entertaining. (laughs) Right. Even though it was very one dimensional, Mm. ahistorical Mm. and cartoonish Mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm. And um, I kept, you know, not only I've watched all the episodes so right. far. I think I'm so interested in this in this story, mm. and just seeing any story that you've you've read about mm. um, being reenacted. Sure, there's sure. a kind of pleasure in that. Well,
0: that's true. I mean, there is there, is, and like I said, you know what I found an issue: the reenactment. If you know the book, yeah, the reenactment can just be a kind of. A kind of a simple yeah. pleasure in itself. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The cherry on top
1: yeah. of a great story, and I think the underlying story here is so interesting, sure. especially if you're sure. if you're a film a film fan. interested in sure. in film history. Um, and I do I do quite like Miles Teller. I find him. A yeah, I like him too. Lead. I thought I
0: thought he was good. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was good. I just I didn't think I thought all of the performances had potential, yeah. but just
1: I thought Matthew Good is uh, recreating you know Robert Robert Evans, yeah. and, you know the swinging 60s slash seventies was was just just. No, idiotic enjoyment sure. in sure. some ways i just i like this time period yep. i like these uh these players mm. and um yeah look i i like this this and look, pilot and this series maybe
0: just, at 56 minutes i would have been on board with you <laughs> but an hour and 4 minutes that would that was a clincher for me so i'm i'm out
1: <laughs> i think is if you lower your expectations yep. i i went into this knowing this yep. was this was a bit of a critically panned show mm. um despite that um i'm
0: i'm in fair yeah fair yeah. enough fair enough Okay, so onto this week's archive corner. Yes. We're doing um one of the classic 2000 <laughs> series, Gossip Girl. Um so firstly, can I say how much I miss the funky pacing of Naughty's television? <laughs> I just it's so good. It's um, snappy. Let, let let me talk you through like how how I came around to rewatch this series. So, Kyle and I often we watch we like to have a series on the go with our friend Jesse. Mm. Um, hi Jesse, you rock, Jesse. Um, and the last show we did was Sex in the City and we kind of like that kind of TV show. Um, I'd never seen Sex in the City before. I'd seen quite a bit of Gossip Girl at the time, so we decided to do Gossip Girl next. Yeah, so
1: interestingly, were you a, a viewer of a Gossip Girl when it was first? I was, so I, right, I, watched, okay. I watched
0: several seasons on DVD and it's kind of interesting to compare them. So they're both kind of about you, know, high, you know, like high society in New York City and they both are driven by a voiceover. But it's funny, I mean, after watching all of Sex in the City, I mean, there are some things that are original about it, sure, but I thought on the whole it was a fairly kind of mean-spirited, conservative kind of show. Gossip Girl? I, no, no, Sex and oh, the City. sure. Sex and the City. And I kind of came away from it, you know, finding it quite distasteful, I have to say, yeah. and and mean-spirited, essentially yeah. mean-spirited. And it's, it's funny, I've had almost the exact opposite reaction watching Gossip Girl because, okay. you know, and I, I'm talking a little bit beyond the pilot here, we'll come back to the pilot, but although these characters are all part of a privileged New York elite and they've all got their ego issues they're all essentially lovable characters, I think, when you get to know them. Um, and the show has a really kind of good-hearted, generous and very tender quality to it, which i kind of forgotten about, um, you know, since watching it. And you know, at heart, I think it really beautifully captures the heartache and angst of adolescence. So mm. it's just interesting to watch it alongside Sex and the City. I think in, in retrospect, Sex and the City has a very cruel and punitive kind of core, whereas Gossip Girl, I think, has a very you know, for all the kind of trappings of angst and ego, has a very generous and good-spirited core. Yeah. Um, the, cl- the, the characters, obviously, we've got Blair Wardorf, <laughs> Leighton Meester. We've got Serena Vanderwoodson, Blake Lively. I love that name. <laughs> and kind of say, how great is Blake Lively's voice? It's yes. such a good voice. We've got um, Eric Vanderwoodson, Conor Palo, <laughs> Dan Humphrey, Penn Badgley of Ufame, um, Jenny Humphrey, Taylor Momsen, Nate Archibald, Chase Crawford, and of course, Chuck Bass by Ed Westwick. And so it's about the you know, the basic premise of the pilot is that Serena has returned to New York. They all, mm. they all go to an exclusive. They're all members of the New York aristocracy. Yeah. Um, Apparently the Humphreys are poor because they live in Brooklyn in a giant open plan apartment. I, lo- I love how Brooklyn is slumming it in yeah. in, um, and the, in Gossip Girl. And the
1: father's a real failure because oh, his, yeah, yeah. his band is all washed up despite the fact they're in the Rolling Stone, you know, most underrated well, uh, bands of the 1990s. This is God. something else. I feel like the show... What's be, the bar of success here?
0: Because it came out in 2007, the show is very keen to differentiate itself from the 90s and from the parents generation partly because all the um all the adolescents look 25 and the parents look 30 yes the so they, parents are really young the here. parents are really young very anxious and also you know serena goes out with dan and serena's mother strikes up an old romance with dan's father so they need to keep the generation separate so they keep on periodizing the 90s when the so, father show showed up and i was like oh, okay that's our protagonist that's, and i was like he
1: was the father that's, the, that's the
0: brother um so there, there's that there's that the, the father has introduced... I think his name. Dan and Jenny's father have introduced um, by way of a Rolling Stone cover article about the 10 best forgotten bands from the <laughs> 90s. And there's also a moment where someone... I think um, Serena's mother mentioned something about Nine Inch Nails, and Dan's father says... Oh, oh no, he mentions Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. And she says, let's not bring up stuff from decades ago. Now, this is 2007. Nine Inch Nails... It's a new world. <laughs> but also Nine Inch Nails is not decades ago. True, It's true, like 10 true. years ago, and, it, and they're still current. So there's this there is this very very um almost an anxiety about differentiating the noughties from the 90s <laughs> right. in the series um but yeah but i love how i love how being poor means living in yes you know living in like an open plan exposed brick brooklyn apartment with a father who used to be a rock star yeah. so serena um so yeah so serena comes back from so yeah it all takes place in the aristocratic world of new york high society they all go to a really fancy school um you know that parents can't trust funds, upper echelons of wealth. And the kind of driving force of the narrative is Serena comes back from a mysterious year away. Mm. She tells people she's been at boarding school, but it's clearly some something else. Yeah. And I also love the way that she's come all the way from Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> so Connecticut is massively, massively remote. So mm. that's what sets it in play.
1: And <laughs> She's really repudiated, but I can't quite figure out why, why yeah. she's ostracised yeah, so, exactly. so, so much. Well, I'm... I
0: think the reason um, is, well... Oh, okay. You know, okay, we come to we come, we come to well, learn the, that. But... Well, the reason is because she hasn't been in contact with Blair, okay. and Blair's father has left her mother. So, um, look, I mean, I, I just think it captures that breathless romance of adolescence so well. There's, it's. You know, fantastic musical score, fanta- like just great at orchestrating interlocking gazes mm. and montage sequences. There's a great moment when uh, Blair, Serena, and Nate all see each other, all lock eyes together at the first time as Justin Timberlake's "What Goes Around" starts playing. <laughs> so it's like a perfect, yeah. a perfect kind of just <laughs> naughty moment. And just yeah, I mean, I've now watched this pilot twice recently, rewatching, and I just think, I mean, it's, it's a lot. I just think for a show that is on the surface as catty and as you know, superficial as Sex and the City, there's actually a very tender heart here. Yeah. And it's become more tender as it's gone along. So, yeah, I'm curious, what, what's your impression watching it for the first time? Well,
1: wow, this was real. It was like a time machine. What Back the, to the uh, the, the mid 90s in this, a way that I hadn't really experienced before. Is so. this the
0: last great text about flip phones? <laughs> Do you think? Yes. Like, it's if flip phones <laughs> are Definitely. everywhere. And blogging. Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> the golden age of blogging. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, the music, I, I heard... I heard, you know, needle drops I haven't heard since, you know, nightclubs in the, in the mid-noughties, you know, from Akon and, mm. you know, Justin Timberlake and, um, you know, so firstly, you know, there was quite a shock to have that, you know, that transportative, you know, time time machine-like quality of the, of the series.
0: And it's funny, isn't it? Because I remember, you know, in about 2012, all of a sudden realising that the 90s were periodized, mm. And now in 2022, and all of a sudden, 2007, which... To me, it didn't even feel like the present. It felt like the future. Yes. Like, even in 2010, 2010, growing up in the 90s, 2007 still felt like the future. Yes. Now it feels like the past. Yes. It's
1: such a kind, con- yeah. I know, I know. So there was, I think, you know, there was very nostalgic, firstly. and um, Secondly, I respected the length of this pilot. Uh, it was a very snappy, fast-paced no no 40 nonsense. minutes. Yep. Um, obviously, this originally was broken up by ads. Was yeah. it originally screened on a commercial? Yes, it was. This
0: what I'm saying about funky pacing, though. Mm. Like, there is a sense, there's such a sense of propulsion. And it's interesting, this first episode, I'm going a bit beyond it now, it establishes a formula for many of the episodes in the first season, which is it, it, it revolves around one of Blair's events. Right. So it all, it all, revo- or an event that Blair is going to. So it all revolves around an event, which gives it that extra propulsion as I well. Think,
1: I think it's interesting as well. I mean, this period of, of TV, I mm. guess, which is just around the start of the golden age, but this is obviously a commercial uh, show. So largely, um, I guess we might say, um, the golden age of television in some ways was defined against this style of of television. But there's a lot to say about how engaging this form of television is. So the fact that they had to structure a TV show around advertisements Mm. uh, really meant that the audience had to be hooked at every little... minor Mm. cliffhanger moment Mm. so for that reason there are a lot of little uh little moments here that do you know
0: build a narrative propulsion and suspense in some ways i think you often see that through music there's i mean i think this there's a beautiful i think a beautiful scene where blair realizes that nate slept with serena and serena is also kind of you know reflecting on it with chuck and it's you know it's just a it's just a scene about heartbreak but the way it builds and the way the music modulates is really beautiful and you get it's almost like you get these mini crescendos in each episode that cut to an ad break and it just gives it a beautiful narrative propulsion
1: flow and i think i think what's interesting there's a big debate at the moment because netflix is considering Mm. introducing ads Mm. and one of the the counter arguments you know is that netflix shows are not designed to be viewed interspersed with ads because Mm. They don't have that same, mm. you know, cliffhanger like mm. quality. Um, I actually think this is this is a virtue of this show, mm. um, rather than you know mm. a, a deficiency. And perhaps more of our contemporary shows, yeah, I which tend to be a bit sluggish in mm. their pacing, a bit turgid, and like you said, pilots over over an hour long, mm. um, self indulgent.
0: And and also, I think that this Gossip Girl pilot does. I think does so well as it, it doesn't just it uses it to its advantage so that the the gaps don't feel arbitrary they're naturally attuned to the beats of the show something else that i think is really interesting just about this first season this pilot is that you know i remembered the show as being so much about the intrigue of who gossip girl was but that's not really a thing here like there's a couple of speculations but the actual identity of gossip girl is in no way really a part of the narrative like there's no forensic element
1: yeah having never seen this show and never encountered Mm -hmm. it before i assumed gossip girl was blake lively and she was some sort of gossip Gossip no, no so it's not um,
0: so. And later in the season In the show And what it became famous for Was trying to discern The identity of Gossip Girl oh, So right, it became okay. almost like A social media thriller At some level But yeah. here It's interesting I mean Gossip Girl Is almost like The same function As a voiceover mm. And it's almost like Gossip Girl is like it's weird. Like at some level, Gossip Girl is observing and commenting, but it's also like Gossip Girl is just omniscient. So yeah. it's like it's like Gossip Girl is the just the platform the yeah. or the medium. Or yeah. my sense, it's like Gossip Girl is the ne- like Gossip Girl is the next threshold in social media. Yeah, this is the world just before Facebook. Yes, so Gossip Girl is Facebook, yeah. or Gossip Girl is the world beyond it's, Facebook. the wall. Yeah, the exactly. The the wall.
1: Exactly. And sometimes, yep. sometimes Gossip Girl acts like a kind of omniscient narrator, like in a yep. film noir where they're explaining what's happened. Yep. Sometimes, you know, giving the characters backstory. Mm. Other times it's like a Greek chorus. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, this is why she was, you know, expelled, mm. excoriated.
0: And sometimes and so Gossip forth. Girl addresses people directly there's yes. like a direct address so exactly it's like it's like gossip girl is that next threshold in social media and especially that kind of social media that emerged after facebook yes or facebook because this is very much the world of flip phones of myspace yes. of blogging as the latest kind of <laughs> the latest is mentioned name oh, here <laughs> continually and even the phones are not quite smartphones so there are lots of scenes this becomes a, a kind of constant pivot in the show where the characters will kind of swivel the top part of their flip phones so <laughs> they can watch something on a screen. Oh, really? Okay. So it kind of captures... I mean, it captures the world before that last moment, before omniscient images. Yeah. You know, I remember with those flip phones, you you could technically take a photograph of anything anywhere, mm. but it was grainy and it wasn't high mm. quality. So mm. it's that last... There's that last texture in the world before smartphones make everything recordable yes. all the time. And there's, there's a romance to that. Yeah. And the series, I think, at some level is about that. I yeah. mean, everything is mediated through Gossip Girl. She's almost like a medium or a form of media here yeah. rather than a person. What, yeah.
1: what I learned recently as well is that the, the absolute apex of the gossip media and the, the um, you know, mass, me- mm. um, mass markets for these sort of gossipy magazines mm was the noughties. And, and that seems rather incredible given how quickly they became obsolescent.
0: And the same thing, you know. I remember I read that the video store had its most remunerative year in 2007, mm. globally the same year as this. Mm. So we're in that space, which I feel so nostalgic for, mm. where we have social media, but we also have those old analogue spaces and experiences. Yeah. And it's such, it's such a precious nexus, yes. which this show captures so well. And I think one way the show captures it is like, although there's all this stuff happening on through gossip girl on phones there's such a soulful and exploratory sense of space Mm. so so much of the show is characters just walking through new york Mm. it's very peripatetic moving from parties to parties when dan and serena have their first kiss it's outside you know in the new york street we start with serena arriving at central station being observed by people like there, there is such a a net it's like it's like New York is networked but still operates in physical space. Mm. You know, mm. like, so the network... Grand is, Central Station yes. plays
1: such a significant role in this yeah. pilot, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and those network gazes, those wonderful, beautiful moments when you have all the different players looking at each other, you know, mm. in interlocking ways. And again, I know this is going a bit beyond the pilot, but I'm, you know, I'm surprised... So I associate Gossip Girl with shows like Dirty Pretty Little Liars, Revenge, both of which I've given a go again recently. And they're both kind of dark, you know, dystopian you know, nasty shows. You know, not, I'm not being moralistic, but mm. their vibe is nasty. That's part mm. of their aesthetic. Whereas the more I watch Gossip Girl, the more I realise, yeah, just how essentially lovable the characters are, including the parents. Like, it's a very mm. forgiving show. And mm.
1: there's just... Well, that's one one real feature of uh, 90s and yeah. naughty's teen shows is how endearing the parents are. Uh, the, yeah, it's, uh, it's like they've kind of created these these exemplars, yes. of, you know, paragons of, yes. you know, of parents who are kind of... And there's also that kind of... Uh, Universal uh, you know, kind of snarky, witty tone that every yep. character has. Every yep. character
0: it's funky, yes, it's funky. Yeah, yep. Every
1: character kind of speaks, no matter no. how the age or how good looking yep. they are, like a kind of so, someone from a writer's room. Yep, you know, yeah, <laughs> who's survived yeah. you know, <laughs> exactly. 40, forty years of popular exactly. content and can you know, can wittily kind of riff yeah, yeah. on any sort of you know uh, pop culture phenomenon, yeah, yeah. literature, yep. film in some ways, yep. like you know Gilmore Girls is, yep. is. you know, I think the apotheosis of that.
0: And yet, and yet, yeah. I think I think this has. I agree. But also, like, whereas Gilmore Girls will say West Wing, take that to a kind of extreme. Yeah. This just has that really nice element where it's kind of, it's leaving by genuine angst and genuine pathos. Yeah.
1: And one thing, one major concern I had about this was that popular people are generally not that interesting.
0: Well, this is a thing, yeah. Yeah.
1: But Blake Lively is a kind of self-hating popular person yep. in some ways in this show. Yep. She has a real kind, a kindness and kind yep. of um, comfort to the mm. way she presents and voices a mm. kind of real serenity to her and, I And mean, her voice
0: is just amazing. Yes. Like the voice yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Um,
1: I'd, I'd seen images of these characters mm. as well, but all assume that they were all just kind of, you know, mean-spirited, Vapid. popular, yeah, yeah. Uh, popular cultures. But the Penn Bad- Badgley character, who's not popular, <laughs> yeah. who's the social outcast for no real reason, given <laughs> he's charismatic, good-looking, you know. Yeah. Like,
0: and he uh, seems to go to the same rich school as everyone else. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah.
1: exactly right. His dad is like an awesome, like, yeah. you know, rocker and so mm. forth. Um but he's he's endearing because yep. he's the outsider. He's character. great. He's great, um,
0: and it's it's fun fun to watch it after you because in you, you know, he plays a sociopath, but he's essentially very likable. Yeah. So it's kind of fun to see him in a role where you actually can like him. I mean, him and Jenny too remind me a lot of um, Brenda and Brendan in Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero, like the siblings who are just kind of from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. I.e. Yeah.
1: Brooklyn and their sibling, the sibling rapport, the yeah. brother sister rapport is great. Uh, is is a real part of this pilot. And, it's fantastic. It's really endearing and really warm. And this I love the sister character. In yeah, the, the, she's
0: great. Yeah. And they they really evolve and it's just, yeah, it's just, it's one of those shows where from a distance you'd think the pleasure was just in seeing really unpleasant, stuck up, rich, privileged people behaving badly. But actually it turns into a really beautiful character drama and they find really interesting ways. Um, And even you glimpse them here, say in Nate's relationship with his parents, you know, who want him to have that arranged marriage with... Blair just for the sake of business I love the
1: father yeah. the father's like you can't break up with her I'm, I've just got her on the hook for this big yeah, business yeah, yeah. deal <laughs> yeah exactly
0: if you don't go to Dartmouth if you don't go to Dartmouth but even that scene it, it's taking place outside they're walking it's so yeah. mobile yeah but exactly like it actually it finds a way to make these characters very sympathetic mm. and very empathetic mm. in a way that is quite surprising I think mm. and again you know from a distance like Sex in the City, two shows that are about New York upper class society, but whereas Sex City I think is essentially mean-spirited, yes, and essentially conservative and cruel mm. and particularly punitive I think around women. Mm. This show has a remarkable empathy for its characters mm. and look, you know, it's become my safe space. So I'm you know, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah, it it's, really
1: this really uh, defied my expectations. Yeah. It was very a very different show to mm. what I what I anticipated and mm. I agree there is a there is a it's well-written. Mm. It is uh, yeah. it's engaging. It is um, and, you know, there is a lot of empathy we have for the characters as well. I
0: should end with an anecdote, too. I mean, I think I told, you know, there was a time when the Carl's American, I was interviewing for schools in New York, mm. um, and I went to a school in Brooklyn, and I immediately recognised it. And I, um, and I was like, something made film, and Gossip Girl was filmed there. Not all the scenes, but some of the scenes. So wow. in episode two there is a scene that takes place on the balcony where I went to talk to my prospective employer. So it's a, it's a yeah. really, it's a, there's a kind it's of full It's particular meaning.
1: So how, how many seasons did this last? Six
0: seasons. So we have that wonderful Naughties thing too of like, you know, 23 episodes a season. Yeah, just, you know, yeah, just yeah. propulsive. You can <laughs> sing. I and mean, I, I just love the texture. Like I love, yeah. it's what that you know, person said to me about, I love the sheen of, you know, yeah. of 2000s oh, there's, there's television. Oh, the glossiness. glossiness. The
1: glossiness of the magazines yeah. is captured. Yeah. Yeah. The aesthetic of this. And just
0: the granularity yeah. of the image. And have you seen all six seasons? Uh, at the time I only saw three yeah. just on DVD, so I'm looking forward to getting the last three. So you still haven't seen the last three? No. And so we're doing rewatching it all from the beginning. And is it generally reputed to have maintained its quality I all the way through? Not the last season so much, but okay. the first ones. And, and I'm curious too, I haven't seen the Netflix um, the reboot, reboot. But I'm I'm, a thing I'm skeptical from a distance because the characters are so beautifully defined mm. here.
1: How was it received? Was it Poorly. Okay. I
0: think poorly. Okay. Um
1: but yeah, look. I, mean, I can see why. If it, it this is a show, definitely of its of its time,
0: and it's also very soon to remake it. It only ended yeah. in twenty twelve. It's only yeah. ten years old. So Look, I'm a I'm a hard in. Um, what's your archive choice for next week?
1: So my archive choice mm. um, is an interesting one. Now I actually encountered this show when I was when I was young. Okay, and was was you know somewhat engaged by it. Mm. Um, but just recently, I've been I've been looking to get back in. Maybe just a maybe a thirty minute show mm. just to watch here and there, just mm. to you know, past those kind of those times where you've just got that awkward, yeah. awkward amount of time. They can be really hard to come thing. by. Okay. A be, good thirty-minute show. Be. So yeah. I've been looking for some, you know, good thirty-minute comedies, and there've been a few. You know, trial and error, and mm-hmm. I haven't quite found that. But I, I, would like to introduce one of those that I've enjoyed. Go um, for it. Uh, but not this week. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Circular surprise archive <laughs> that's right, choice. That's right. Surprise that's right. archive choice. So really flipped the script on you. Okay. Anyway. Interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> our our next series mm-hmm. uh, from the archives. It's going to be Batman the Animated Series. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Okay,
0: excellent. Uh, we haven't done any archived animated shows. No, we haven't done right, any okay, anima- cool.
1: archived animated shows. Mm. And it turns out that this archived animated show is very critically well regarded. Interesting. Yeah, so it was a show, obviously, that we probably encountered in Saturday morning cartoons. I, I remember watching it. Yep. Yeah, it lasted four seasons. Mm. Uh, started in 1992, which mm. was earlier than I, than I assumed, but has some big comic book credentials behind it. And were there any big voice
0: actors in it? Anyone we'd know? Uh, Mark Hamill. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. so I
1: I think there's quite a lot of um, high-profile voice actors here.
0: And there's such a thing, I guess we will talk about it next week, but the Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. Batman, Chip and Dale. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Darkwing Duck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So for that reason, it's all available now on Stan, the whole four
0: seasons. Sounds great. So I thought it would be an interesting uh, way Mm. of uh, changing things up. I feel like too, you know, because quite a few of the shows you watch can be quite heavy or challenging where we have a tendency just to seek out stuff that's kind of fun. Yeah. For the archive corner. (laughs) I think that's right. Fun stuff.
1: It's an index of what the TV landscape is today compared to what it was, you know, 30 years ago. So so yeah, Batman, the animated series. Can't wait. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.